Welcome to the New Model Advisor podcast. Uh, I'm the editor, Will Robbins. I'm joined today by Mark Stevenson, uh, who likes to be called a reluctant futurist. Probably doesn't like being called a futurist at all. And some of you may uh, remember Mark from speaking uh, at New Model Advisor and City EOR events in the past. So hello, Mark. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, we're going to start. Uh, your journalists can't see beyond, uh, you know, their, their nose beyond one foot in front of them. I want to talk about the here and now, okay. uh, not the future. But we think I think it will be relevant. Uh, COVID nineteen yes. coronavirus. Um, this time last year, were you talking about epidemics? Were futurists, so to speak, talk, talking about the possibility of them um, or, or not? And what's your view of what's happening? Uh, so for a long time, those of us who think about systemic issues have been very worried about the lack of drug development in antibiotics, for instance. Um, and there's a systemic issue with, uh, with the current commercial model of making drugs. They tend to make drugs for the rich. So they'll make drugs for obesity, but they won't make drugs for tuberculosis because they say there's no profits in that because they're diseases of the poor. Um, and similarly with antibiotics, you know, there's, you know, th there's this kind of argument that, oh, it's just difficult to make drugs, we have to make profits. If we don't make profits, there's no, uh, there's no drugs at all, so we have to go for the sort of the stuff that makes lots of money. But actually the drugs industry has had a stratospheric decline in efficiency since the 1960s in that um, if you adjust the figures for inflation, for every billion dollars of revenue, sorry, for every billion dollars spent on research and development, um, it used to be we got sort of 50 drugs approved and now we get less than one. Right. So, and the reason for that is because the pharma industry got very fat on profits, and when you have uh, a very rich industry, um, uh, innovation goes um, uh, in the toilet, because why would you change anything if you're making a fortune? Right. So they haven't really changed the way they make drugs, which is why it takes so long to do drugs. Now, there are some also some regulatory issues which slow things down as well. It's not all the, the fault of the drug companies. But there's a bigger systemic issue here about how, how quickly we can develop new drugs. Um, which, of course, you know, is on everybody's mind at yeah. the moment. It's I like, mean, could, 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 well, can we have something for COVID-19 yeah. now? Is you it know? a stretch to say that's affecting their ability to respond to this? Uh, I mean, all organisations find it difficult to respond to uh, rapidly evolving um, and changing times. And the bigger they are and the older they are, often the harder they find to respond. So in my second book, I wrote about open source drug discovery, where they came up with new ways to attack tuberculosis for not billions of dollars, but millions of dollars by doing a crowdsourced version of drug development wow. and um, getting students all around India to read every single scientific paper ever written about tuberculosis, extract all that knowledge in a computable format, send it back to the, um, the mothership where a brilliant bloke called Rohit turned that into the first simulation of tuberculosis ever created, fully working simulation. They switched it on and within you know, a matter of months they were finding new ways to attack tuberculosis, which was great because we had, up until then we hadn't had a new drug for tuberculosis since 1971. Wow. Uh, so you mentioned computing. Mm. I mean, will AI help in this regard? It seems quite human-based at the moment, but I mean, I don't know anything about how pharmaceuticals are developed. Um, I mean, AI can help a lot. AI is very good at sort of, you know, finding um, patterns in data and stuff like that. AI is very good at uh, answering complex questions, but it's terrible at framing them. So unless you ask mm. it the right question, you know, which you'll get rubbish out. You don't get artificial intelligence, you get artificial stupidity, in fact. Right. And you see an awful lot of that in the corporate world. People go, we must embrace AI, and they employ some machine learning to some process that used to be done by humans, and now it's twice as expensive and twice as annoying, right. uh, and <laughs> twice as long, because they haven't really thought about the process itself. So if you're, 
if you can ask the right questions, and, and as in all organisations, most organisations are asking themselves entirely the wrong questions because yeah. they're asking themselves the questions of yesterday, which are the questions they're comfortable with, the questions their culture allows to be asked, rather than asking the questions of tomorrow, which may be unfamiliar to them. Now, just to, just sort of uh, another question about the uh, about coronavirus. Yeah. Um, look, you know, if I was to step back from the here and now, if I was talk again talking to you last year about epidemics mm -hmm. and, and what the next few years or 10 years or whatever looks like, what what would you have told me? You know, I'm th thinking not just about the pharmaceutical companies, but the way that the structure of society, the way we travel, the way governments respond to it. Yeah. What, is this something that has been, the, the, how fast this has spread? Is it just very particular to what this, this type of disease? Or is this something that we're gonna see uh, more of in the future uh, and, 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 str and struggle to deal with? Well, what I've been saying to my clients, including government clients, is um, you should think of coronavirus as a bit like an easy training day for what's coming. For what's coming? In, in terms of, so society has to be reimagined, and we all know that, because democracy is in retreat, because we're still using the same software for democracy we used you know, 200 years ago. Uh, employee engagement is about 15%. 1% uh, of the world's population and 50% of the wealth. Uh, we have not a healthcare system, but an incredibly labyrinthine and expensive sick care system, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. And we've got climate change, which is going to destroy everything unless we do something about it. And is that the thing that's coming that that's you're saying? The, that's that's the thing that's coming. So, so um, you're seeing it now. It is happening that people have finally sort of woken up to this stuff. Uh, and you're seeing it in the financial space, which is really great. You know, you know, 10 years ago, I'd be wandering into, you know, investment houses going, you need to take the environment seriously because the way the money thinks affects everything else. And they'd be going like, who is this hippie? And now yeah. they're inviting me and going, can you help us communicate or help or change the culture organisation to take this stuff seriously? Um, so they're late to the game, but at least they've arrived, which is good. Um, but yeah, climate change is a big thing. If we don't solve that, you know, you'll have many more pandemics, you'll have climate refugees, you'll have the collapse of states, all that kind of stuff happening in quite quick succession. So there's, you either embrace that challenge and do something with it and never let a good crisis go to waste, or you don't do anything about it and you get completely shafted. So this is, this is kind of an interesting point for me because I'm watching the world in a way wake up to many of the systemic challenges that I've been talking about for 10 or 15 years and me and my friend Ed Gillespie another futurist say so, you know we've been in training for 20 years for this moment. Just out of interest who are the organizations you're working with and where are you kind of you know how, where, where are you getting your sort of sources of information from? Well obviously I'm under crushing non-disclosure agreements <laughs> for most of them but you know this week um, for instance I've been with the Department of Education I've been with the MOD uh, being with Medicine Sans Frontier, okay, um, wow. but also a bunch of, of corporates as well. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm lucky in my job in that it's very broad, which means one day I'll be with a bunch of cardiac nurses, the next day I'll be with some neuroscientists, and the next day I'll be with some, you know, people in the financial world. Yeah, and that allows me to bring to them ways of thinking, or ways of connecting, or ways of seeing a problem that they might not see because we're all stuck in our own silos generally, and we yeah. tend to think about things from within the culture we're in. And I'm, you know. People often say, "Oh, you're really clever, Margaret," which is, you know, like, I'm not clever. I'm just broad. Mm. I'm just, I'm just about more than you are, and that gives me a certain viewpoint that may, maybe might be useful to you. Interesting. One of the now uh, something I, you know, one of the things I wanted to to ask. It sounds like a sort of quite a small uh, fry question, but I think it can it can be applied bigger. So, uh, I think I was reading a couple of editorials recently where people were saying, "Well, some of the trends that." So there are some trends that have been sped up. Yeah. So, you know, working, working from home, you know, 
people have been talking about th that in the, in the context of productivity uh, and well-being, uh, you know, not air travel. We had a decision about the Heathrow run runway. Yep. That was about an agreement. An agreement was signed, but you know, do we need to fly everywhere for business conversations or can we do it otherwise? Um, I feel, but th that's possibly slightly small picture because what I also want to ask about is uh, something to you, you alluded to in the, just your previous answer there, which was, you know, so the changes that need to be made. Mm -hmm. uh, and so perhaps there are reasons for optimism if we can learn some of those lessons. So I'm perhaps interested in asking you what they might be. In terms of... So, I mean... Are you talking about if, individual or, or systemic changes? Well, let's start with the individual, right. perhaps. Well, I think the first thing the individual can do is be literate about the big questions because there are two types of signals, really. There's cultural signals and there's financial signals. And so, for instance, if you look at uh, climate change, for instance, you want your universities and your theatres and whatever to be divesting from fossil fuels because they're small shareholders generally, so they don't have that much effect. And they send a very clear cultural signal that we've got to change the way society works. Right. You do not want, for instance, maybe uh, Schroders or BlackRock or LNG divesting because they are big shareholders and they can say okay we're going to vote you down if you don't start you know taking this climate change stuff seriously and we can we can materially affect the structure of your board and, whatever. Mm. and that has a real effect so you, so so you know you, you the, i think the most important thing individuals can do is we can be literate about these things and start talking about them and start saying you know this concerns me because you can then send a cultural signal it's really important that you do that uh, and then, of course, you know, you can look at your investments because the point is if you're investing in anything that is not advancing the sustainable development goals um, without damaging any of the others, then you're actively contributing to a future where you won't be able to spend your investment because you'll have destroyed the world. Let's talk about climate change because uh, the, the idea of uh, in investing in a, in a way that's aware of, of climate issues, you know, ESG, yeah. investing, uh, it, I mean, the, the narrative has become more popular, certainly, mm. uh, and I think we are starting to see that uh, with with increases in sort of you know basic assets being allocated yeah. to these types of investment. Um, it'll be yeah, the norm within five years. It'll, it'll be, be the, the norm. norm what does that? It's a funny thing, though. I think because uh, you know you talk to a fund manager, they might say, "Well, I was never trying to be unsustainable <laughs> the way I invested, right?" But ESG. You know, some of it is, has been ethical, what we might call ethical investment, which yeah. to me is, is a different thing. It's about saying, oh, I, you know, I don't like, uh, you know, I, I don't approve of tobacco or, yeah. or, or, or adult entertainment or something like that. Yeah. Um, but the thinking about that, that climate, that investing towards the, the, those climate goals yeah. and that way, what, what is the change that needs to be there from, from an investor or a fund manager who says, well, I've, I've never wanted to be unsustainable to, to perhaps from your point of view going, Right now, now you've got it. <laughs> now you're doing what you should be doing. Well, the problem with human beings and therefore the markets is they're short term and they don't value the things that we need to value. Um, I do this thing quite often um, when I'm giving a talk. I may have done it at a city where I talk. I say, put your hand up if you care about the future and the environment. And every single person puts their hand up. And I say, keep your hand up if the organisation you represent is carbon neutral. And everybody puts their hand down. So, again, so something's happened there on the way into work. You know, mm. because on the one hand, as an individual, you say you think long term, you care about the future and sustainability. But when you get into work, well, the short term profits come quicker. Um, so what we need is a cultural shift. And I think things like coronavirus can help with that because suddenly you realize there is something far more important. Uh, and you have seen companies do this. You know, Unilever very famously, Paul Polman said, I'm not going to stop doing quarterly reporting. I'm going to halve our environmental 
uh, impact whilst doubling our revenues. He said that when he took over in 2006, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought he's crazy, he won't last long. Actually, by having that long-term view, um, Unilever's going great guns. And, and, there's a, you know, and the reason that if you're, if you're much more aware of these systemic long-term questions as well, um, you manage risk far better because you're outward-looking. And if you're outward-looking, you, of course you manage risk. Most organisations, it seems to me, are driving their car just by staring at the dashboard and not looking out the window. And they go, well, that's all right because you know, the, the, the revs are here and we've got enough petrol in the tank and whatever, yeah. Yeah. without realising they're about to drive off a cliff. Right. So the, the cultural shift we need, um, which is often hampered by the media cycle and the way the markets work, is one of long-termism and generational thinking as well, something you might see in an indigenous community. You know, they often think you know, five or six generations ahead and they make their investments you know, culturally and, and, and financially and, and in, in their practices yeah. by thinking like that. And we've got to wake up and start doing that if we care about our children. And what, what you're really talking about, and, you know, we keep mentioning coronavirus because obviously it's having this, this impact on mm. our da daily lives, which, yeah. is, which is what it really comes down to. And you know, as you say, with climate change, a lot of people say, well, you know, I've, just, you know, mm. I've got to get to work. I've got to yeah. live my life. Yeah. And that's what's changing right now. But uh, in terms of that being a dry run yeah. for, for, for climate change, I think what you're basically saying is people are going to have to cut their cloth differently. Yeah, and I don't, it's, it, the thing is, it's not, it doesn't have to be a, a lose lose situation you know we have all the technology and the knowledge to transition the world actually quite rapidly to um, a sustainable much more equitable much more just world but there's a, a number of big breaks on that one is the democratic deficit in that the democratic system is still using the same software it was using in, in 1850 or whatever. yeah explain explain what needs to change there well we need to have a much more agile and participatory system where many more actors and voices can get in there and, and change the way it works and right. I mean that's a whole other podcast so I don't want to go down <laughs> that route because and, and I wrote about it in my last book about but more than just voting but more, more, right. well yeah I mean it's I wrote about it in my last book about participatory budgeting where citizens decide how to spend their own taxes you're right now the budgeting process for doing that is quite expensive you have to involve all the citizens but the return on investment for everybody rich poor um, private sector public sector alike is huge because you know, corruption disappears tax receipts go up because people have to pay them social contract is rebuilt better social cohesion it takes a while to do this kind of stuff because it's a cultural shift if you do participatory budgeting for a couple of years in a city nothing changes because people are rightly cynical about it you do it for 10 15 30 you've changed the culture of a place where people expect to be asked how to spend their own taxes and they're, they're involved in that process. So the contract has been changed and that's what we need now. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to think much more about our contract with the future. And at the moment, we think about our contract as with our individual futures. It's quite interesting. If you ask people about the future and they say, how do you think you're going to do in the future? They'll go, oh yeah, I'll be all right. And then you say, how do you think society is going to be? Oh, no, society is absolutely terrible. It's, it's all going to hell in the handcart. Yeah. And those two things are incompatible. Mm. And it's because we have been atomized by our current prevailing culture to think of ourselves as in competition with each other and as consumers. Mm. And we need to think of ourselves in cooperation with each other and as citizens. I mean, there's a lot of big topics there. But, I mean, one of the things... Uh, just in thinking about sort of emergencies and crises before we go on to other things. But one of the things that struck me was the, the ability of political systems to, to deal with it in a sort of agile way. So, you know, we've already seen this week sort of each country has a different response. There's no kind of real real agreement. Um, you know, some, some, you know, Trump's travel ban was out, came out of the blue. There was no yeah. consultation. Yeah. Um, but I guess each government's accountable to their own electorate and maybe, maybe they're making decisions in that sort of, 
quote-unquote narrow sense, but what's, what's going on there? And is, is the political system really kind of, is it not able to deal with things like this? Well, I think what you're saying now is not the political system dealing with it. You know, this, you know, coronavirus is not a left-wing or a right-wing problem. Right, you sure. Know? Okay, yeah. what you're saying is different governance structures dealing with it well or not. Yeah, gov- so, governance. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so I've been with, you know, various bits of the government this week, and I've been very impressed with our civil service, actually. You know, it has, right. many, it has many problems, but they're, they're doing some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And in the UK, actually, we're very lucky in that we have a huge amount of actual world-class expertise in pandemics and epidemiology. Yeah, epidem- ep- never pronounced that word. Epidemiology and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we're kind of a centre for expertise. The thing is, nobody's really dealt with anything like this before, so we're all making our best guesses, best, yeah. you know. So we'll see. Um, I would say um, that the UK's response actually is pretty good. It may turn out in hindsight to have been the wrong one, but based on the conversation I've been having and being particularly impressed with the chief medical officer and so forth, that I yeah. think you know that's a good one. Then you go to China, it has a very different response because because it's more autocratic, you can close things down, and actually yeah. that has some advantages. And then you go to Iran, which you know the state there is is kind of run on the basis of uh, let's say less open. It's less yeah. open than we others. Yeah. It's slightly more, you know, whatever. Um, and that doesn't appear to have gone very well at all. Yeah, you know? the, the sort of heavy-handedness so, doesn't necessarily... Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, there's, a, um, there's a false perception, I think, that if you have more participatory ways of working and more network ways of working, that you don't need leadership. And mm. that's not true. You still mm. need very strong leadership. But it's much easier to lead a bunch of people who feel like they're able to collaborate with each other and move on the fly than to lead a bunch of people by telling them what to do when they don't like or know each other. I think that's really interesting uh, because that comes down to the idea of trust. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of reading some things about, obviously, before this outbreak, which is obviously colouring everything we're talking about, yeah. that, that, you know, oh, trust is breaking down, trust in society, trust in our, our you know, don't know, deference has, has gone, mm-hmm. we won't just do what we're told. Um, but, uh, and also some things more recently were saying, well, you know, if we were to just share more of our data with the government, it could help us more with avoiding, you know, mm-hmm. infectious areas and things like that. Um, interesting though, yeah, this idea that, of leadership and collaboration and trust, because just moving on to some of some other t- subjects and, and looking forward to, you know, the next 30 years, uh, which we're going to be writing about in, in this special edition I'm making, yeah. um, what you know where what trust what's happening to trust and where where it still exists i suppose well trust has been in massive decline and for very good reason it's because the systems we use are no longer capable of dealing with the problems we have so you don't trust that you don't you know you don't trust an old machine you know <laughs> like if you get an old banger of a car you right. trust it less than the, the the new car right because it's just, it's just not working anymore and that's what we've got really and if you look at our systems they're the old bangers and that's the reason people don't trust them because they keep seeing them fail mm. if you're under 30 mm. for instance your experience of democracy is not one of you know what a wonderful system it's like this doesn't democratize anything it doesn't democratize health wealth education opportunity i think it's ridiculous that we have these you know left versus right get into one room so that some people can get their own prejudices up on one, one particular agenda it's not a way of governing anything. I mean, if an alien looking from outside looked at the way we govern ourselves, they'd go, off your rocker. Seriously, yeah. you're a human race of 7 billion people and all you're doing is, you know, having these sort of, you know, uh, zero-sum games as to who wins. And actually all your successes have been through cooperation, yet you run your governments and you run your media on, on the basis of, of conflict. Mm. So, um, so we need to have much more trust and you don't build trust from the top down. You build it from the bottom up. So there's something I use in my work called the Human Trust Ladder. 
And it starts off with, if you don't know anybody, you, you, you go to a party, for instance, and you don't know anybody. And what you do is you do small talk don't you, with the people. And what you're essentially doing there is you're trying to work out whether the person opposite you is trying to kill you or steal your drink. So you're establishing this level of trust, which is like, am I safe? And that's the kind of storytelling level. Once you're happy at that level, you go up to the next level, which I'll share information about myself. Um, and organizations where departments will share information work much better than organizations where departments keep information to themselves. And once you've got that information sharing level, you go up to the next level, which is asset sharing. Okay, yes, we, you can have that member of staff, or you can have access to that database. You know, or in, you know, in your neighborhood, yes, you can borrow my lawnmower because I figure you're not going to steal it. Or you can babysit my kids, if you think of your kids as an asset. But you know what I mean? I'm willing to share things of actual value with you. And yeah. again, organizations that have asset sharing between departments function far better and are far more agile than ones that don't. Then you go up to the next level, which is doing projects together, so cross-departmental projects, cross-organizational projects, or whatever. And having done those projects, you know, once you've got to that level of trust, you get to the final level, which is the priorities level, which is having done those projects, we want to change the rules of the game. We want to say, maybe the law needs to be changed, or this, the, the way we structure the organization needs to be changed, or we need to change the way the management's done, or we need to change the rule book, or whatever. And there's nothing surprising about that. Everybody recognizes that. And as you go up that ladder, you're seeing increasing levels of trust between people, increasing levels of collaboration. Um, uh, decreasing levels of politics because people are divided by politics are very soon brought together around a project. You know, you right. ask people to do something, build something together, their politics pretty much disappears. They'll agree on 98% of what needs to be done. Mm. Um, in most cases, there yeah. are a few notable exceptions. Um, uh, but you're also looking at increasing levels of socialization. And the biggest indicator of whether you lead a long and happy life is not whether you quit smoking or have a healthy diet, although those things are important. The biggest indicator of whether you lead a long and healthy life is how socialized you are. Right. Okay. Now, the problem with the world is it works in exactly the opposite way at the moment. Some of the top sets of priorities, then they decide which projects need to be done, then they decide which assets need to be corralled, then they decide which information needs to be shared, and finally they'll tell it to the employee or the consumer or the voter. And if the community you're trying to send that leadership or that direction into isn't at least at the asset sharing level, no amount of leadership works. Hmm. So that's why you yeah. need, as a leader, part, half of your job is building a culture where people are happy and collaborative and trust each other anyway, rather than leading by dictat. That's a very optimistic uh, view of things. I, I, I suppose uh, I'm sort of millennial, right? I can so hear a bit... massive butt coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and that's all very well and good, but what about this I'm horrible... at a classic age, about to turn 35, right. caught between two generations yes. in a way, because I'm, I'm not as sort of happy as generation, generation Z or whatever it is. <laughs> or, uh, I'm not as cynical as, as, as Gen X. But, uh, I mean, I feel like sort of populism kind of marshals some of the same things you're talking about, but in a way that I'm not perhaps as comfortable with. I don't think it does. I think what populism does is it says we're in separate groups. You're either with us or against us. Ah, okay. You know, um, it doesn't build by, give, by giving you something to build, mm. it, it, by, you know, giving you a project to work on together. Yeah. It says who's your enemy. Yeah. Okay. And you can build, you can still use these techniques to build, you know, um, organizations that are, you know, placing themselves and uh, you know as antagonistic to other people sure, sure, sure. Yeah. but if you're looking at society generally yeah, yeah. you want to be building social cohesion and the problem in a lot of societies particularly western ones that have been dominated by a financial paradigm of short-termism yeah is that social cohesion has been seen as a bit too expensive um and look at a lot of social policies have been, been about destroying social cohesion and and, and the cult of the individual mm. now that's not me making a political point because I'm also, you know, believe that, you know, you need to work hard and work for yourself and strive. And, you know, it is to a certain extent a bit of a competition. Mm. But what are we competing for? You know, I'd rather be, you know, leading an organization that's uh, all about bringing people together well, than leading an organization where everybody hates each other. And, uh, you know, this is why we have 85 percent employee disengagement. 
Okay? 85% of employees do not like the job they do. Right. Okay? Because they now realize that their salary is bribery, not reward. Bribery to forget about the fact that they are complicit in a system that is wholly unfair and is destroying their own children's future. Right. That's not long-term sustainable. Okay? It can get you so far. And we are now... My friend Ed Gillespie calls this the great humbling that we're starting to see now. And coronavirus is just the beginning of it. Of us suddenly realizing that we're not so... Uh, brilliant as we think we are and the way we organize ourselves is not as good as we, as we would like to believe mm. and the status quo is going to have to realize that finally they're being called on the really big important systemic issues mm. and things are going to have to change quite dramatically and I, I talk about the good the bad and the ugly in my work the yeah. bad news is it's broken the good news is it's fixable the ugly news is the next 30 years are a bloodbath the good news is that the, 30 the ugly the, news. The, the ugly news, news is the next thirty years are a bloodbath. You know. What do you mean by that? In that, we're going to have to ho- have a wholesale change of how we think about governance, finance, how we run corporations, how we run the healthcare system. Yeah. As we we're going to necessarily necessarily have to move away from extractive business models, which is what we have at the moment, yeah. to regenerative ones. If you if if you're an alien looking at our this planet from outside, you'd have to conclude that what most businesses do is. Uh, is do environmental degradation and turn it into short-term profit. That's not a sustainable model. Yeah. You wouldn't run your business by going out and destroying um, the factories that make the product. But that's what we're doing with the plants yeah. at the moment. Yeah. And so when you say extractive, you're you're yeah. explicitly talking about the effect on the on the yeah, environment, on the environment. As, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we, and so the markets don't cost the right things. They don't they don't factor in the environment at all. Yeah. So I've just been asked to go and talk to the all the CEOs of the reinsurance industry, for instance. And my message to them is like, this is all your fault. <laughs> it's <laughs> all your that. fault yeah. because <laughs> your job, right, was is risk management, essentially. Mm. And you didn't cost anything right because if you guys have been costing your insurance policies for all those companies to factor in climate change yeah. and all that kind of That's stuff, right. we might not be in this mess, but you didn't want to because you wanted the short-term profit. Yeah. And surely of any <laughs> industry in the world who should have been ahead of these things on social justice, climate change, inequality, and quantifying and costing those risks in to the cost of doing business, it should have been them. But no, they were too happy in the current sort of cultural paradigm of taking the short-term cash without dealing with the hard, the hard issue. It's so there's, there's, yeah. there's this massive systemic failure yeah. of the insurance industry. Well, I mean, it's talk about good to talk about a few specifics. You know, you mentioned financial services. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets a bad rep. You know, fin- yeah. the the the. Uh, I mean, in general, uh, despite the money being made, um, you know, f- fat cats and and walls yeah. of Wall Street and stuff. You know, were, were had those reputations, but also, you know, obviously the financial crash yeah. crash uh, pr- pretty much did did reputation. But uh, what good does it do, if any? Uh, and what good could it do, and what does it need to do to change? Well, I mean, there's a lot of good it could do, and there's a lot of really good people in the industry, and I am constantly heartened by the very informed conversations I will have about sustainability, social justice, and whatever, with some quite senior people at, at you know, big uh, asset management houses, for instance, or big banks. Yeah. So they get it as individuals. And again, that sort of, you know, they're, 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 there's a new sort of guard coming in. You know, uh, Max Planck famously said that, that science advances one funeral at a time. And, you know, as that older guard from, you know, the 80s disappears and mm. you've got a new set of management coming in, they're really trying to grapple with this issue. Um, and you know, I say this all the time, if the money thinks progressively, then the rest of the world easily follows. I mean, this but if the money thinks regressively, yeah. Yeah. then we're in trouble. And you often see this mismatch between perhaps a quite enlightened management of a company and the shareholders going in the opposite mm. directions. And the shareholders can just take everything out from underneath a progressive company if they're, if they're not thinking in the same direction. Paul Polman said, 
uh, when he took over Unilever, he said, I didn't go and spend time talking to the shareholders I had. I, went, I spent time going and finding the shareholders I wanted. Mm. Such that when Kraft came along and overvalued, you know, did this massive sort of, you know, overvaluation of the company, to, yeah. basically because they wanted to asset strip it, he had enough shareholders that could go, yeah, we're not going to take that premium because we believe in his long-term vision of sustainability and responsible yeah, business. Yeah, we've had share, shareholder revolts yeah. on, on, on several issues. Yeah, so the, you've got to get the money to think. And that's why I spend a lot of my time you know, in investment houses or working with private banks, because if you can change the culture of the way people think about investment and uh and particularly as the new generation of wealth owners coming, so you got a lot of high net worths, who are, and their kids, you know, who are kind of your generation, are coming yeah. to coming into positions of power, going to go like, Dad, Mum, you know, this business you've got seems to be not really very cool about how <laughs> it's made its money. Can we change that? So that's quite nice. So you, there's this opportunity yeah. here to, to, to so, so there is a huge yeah. opportunity for the financial services industry to become heroes. Because if they decide to take this stuff seriously, they can move everything very, very quickly. Mm. But if they decide to carry on not taking it seriously because they'd rather have a short-term bonus whilst destroying our future, then we'll come after you with a pitchfork. Interesting. You know, if you talk about financial services in, in broad terms, I mean, you know, the asset management industry, they will do, deal with quite a lot. Again, you know, very profitable industry. It's got, you know, its own, its own challenges. Uh, but it, it's, as collectively, has used it's taken risk and used its its money to invest in in things that you know it's, i think someone was saying railways you know back, yeah. in, back in the day silicon valley uh largely exists because people were willing to take a risk yeah I'm, and, and, and that that ability to take risk is really important but if you're not fully informed about what the risks are then mm. you might take some of the wrong ones so nobody factored in the risk of climate change because mm. they didn't want to because it was too expensive to do that and it made things more difficult nobody yeah. factors in the risk of mass inequality when the whole system is based upon you getting rich and that's what your reward is for taking risk. Okay. Yeah. So I'm all for taking risk, risk and, and yeah. all the people I know are successful and I like and hang out with are, are risk takers by definition. But they, the ones that are really successful is they're also risk managers and they are aware of all the risks rather than the ones that they're comfortable with. You know, one of the reasons I don't like being called a futurist is because people tend to predict things they find are emotionally or financially convenient. <laughs> rather than looking at the whole picture, which is like, well, actually over here, we've got a bunch of people in poverty and we've got no new antibiotics and we've got, you know, the government is still using the software it was using 200 years ago. Those are also risks and yeah. those risks need to be costed in and they're not. Yeah. And so you can have a short-term win where someone goes, brilliant, you've made this amazing company, you're, you know, you've got a billion dollars of revenue. But if you, if you looked at that business from outside as an alien, you go, that's not a profit because the amount of environmental degradation that company is responsible for is an, a net loss for humanity. It's interesting you've got you know some of those risks there already. You know the, the risk of, of climate change and a, a, of sort of you know not bit extractive industries. Um, and I mean, so we talked about uh, healthcare. Yeah. You know, and uh, antibiotic resistance, things like that. I mean, um, just I want to talk about uh, you know li the, the the literal life that you might live yes. in in the next thirty years or so, or, or, or you know from now on. Uh, Lives are getting longer, but it feels like... Some, in some places, in, and in some places they're getting shorter. Well, tell me about that, because I, I'm interested, because, uh, yeah, it looks, you know, there, there is a picture of, of certainly life stages changing as well. Uh, extra healthy years, but maybe some of those are working, some of those you're ill as well. Uh, it, it seems to be, I mean, it's obviously a changing picture, so... Tell me a little bit about how some of those risks we've, we've talked about also map on to what's going to happen to like, to people's lives. Well, I mean, if we have a few more pandemics, you know, um, 
I mean, if you look at coronavirus, you know, the mortality rate for people under 20 is something like 0.1%. Mm. And the mortality rate, depending on who you talk to, you know, for people over, you know, 70 is between, you know, 2 and 10%. Mm. So a few more of those and, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a problem with living a bit longer, yeah. you know. So... What is the what I mean? What do people's lives look like? Is you know you have a, there's a lot of you know our list our listeners here are financial advisors and other people in, in wealth management and so on. That you know that's their their stock and trade is is people's lifespans. You yeah. know, basically, you know you might start seeing someone possibly at thirty. I mean that's slightly rare, but I ho- hopefully it's, it's coming down. Yeah. Uh, and and you you maybe will have a relationship with them or various businesses will for for the rest of their lives in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so just interested in how that perhaps sort of going right down into that sort of in, into the individual, how people's, uh, the flow of their life is going to change, their working patterns, their health. Yeah, I mean, uh, health is probably the most important thing, right. obviously, because we're all finding out at the moment, yeah, we don't have yeah. that, you don't have anything. Yeah, you know, well, that's, uh, the, that's the humbling again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the humbling. And, and perhaps the most important thing how, um, financial advice should be doing is making sure that um, their customers are weight training and doing some high-intensity interval training, you know, three or four times a week, because that's that's the biggest thing that'll have an effect on their lives and whether they live. And I think you're only sort of half, not or well, not uh, even joking. And, and, and how socialised they are, you know, right. these are really important things. The mm-hmm. idea that you, that that your finances are the are the biggest determinant of your your success in later life is only half true. Of course, you need the money, yeah. but if you, if you're in a wheelchair or you've got diabetes or you're obese, whatever, then well, I think good you know, financial... That, those are more yeah. expensive ways to live. It's in. an interesting question uh, where, where we'll move on to because I think you know, good financial advisors realise that the, the, the finance side, the growth of, of your wealth, I suppose, or whatever money you have, it really is, in, is just in the service yeah. of some other aim. Uh, so I suppose the question is, I've, I've eventually got to, yeah. is, is what that aim is. And you've, you've, you've suggested perhaps, you know, as well as... I want to live a life, you know, I want to retire early or be able to go on nice holidays, um, maybe not cruises <laughs> so much anymore. But also you say, you say, actually, let's look at your socialization, your your yeah. physical well-being over your yeah. life as well. Well, I mean, so, I mean, it's probably not the answer you want to hear, but uh, <laughs> you know, I tend to think of things quite big picture and philosophically, I suppose. And, you know, if you ask people what they want from their lives, they would probably say, I'd like a meaningful life. Yeah, I'd like to have got to the end of it and felt that it meant something. And the best definition of uh, happiness I've ever come across is Daniel Dennett. He says, you know, the best definition of happiness is find something more important than you are and dedicate your life to it. Hmm. So that means that's not just a retirement thing. It's like, what do you do for a living? Where do you put your money? What are your values? How do you live them? Um, because what you don't want to do, as many people do, is, you know, save up, save up, save up. <laughs> And, uh, you know, spend their retirement, you know, redoing their kitchen and, uh, you know, and buying a boat or whatever, but still feeling like actually they didn't really, their life didn't really amount to much. It was just a, a set of financial transactions that got them to the point where they could afford a glass of wine when they're in their retirement. That's not a particularly interesting life to lead. Mm. And so, you know, really we should say to people, what is a meaningful life? One, of the, actually, I don't know whether this relates or not, but one of the questions that I ask people when I'm mentoring them, and I get asked to mentor quite a lot of people in their careers, particularly young people, who say, if I gave you a billion pounds, what would you do? 
And what I'm basically saying yeah. there is I'm removing you and anybody you care about from any possible financial strain. Yeah. So you can yep. basically choose what you like to do. And obviously the first thing you do is you buy a bunch of champagne, have an amazing party and yeah. get a great holiday. <laughs> but after that, what do you do? And people say interesting things. They say, well, I would like to, you know, I, I, I can, you know, I'd love to reform financial services. I'd like to make it more ethical. Or I'd, I want to go and work in conservation. Or I'm really concerned about... I don't know, the mental health of old people or whatever. People have these things they want to do. So then I go, okay, well, let's just work out how you can do that anyway. And let's plot your career such that you end up doing something in that field anyway. I think that's kind of a good piece of financial advice. So, and how do we structure your finances so that you can have meaning in your life yeah. rather than just another car? Yeah. I think, uh, I, think advice, I think sort of some good financial planners will be glad to hear you say that. And uh, it goes back to your idea of uh, framing the question as well as being a very human thing right now yeah. rather than something that necessarily robots and, uh, will, will, yeah. will take away from them. I mean, I've tried to get independent, independent financial advice and I still cannot find a single IFA who wants to engage in the sort of questions that I ask. But well, that's I, probably just the nature of the job I do. I I'm, probably find, the, I, I'm probably the world's worst client. I could find you one. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, if they're interested, <laughs> I've got some advisors. I've got a couple of great financial planners myself. We can talk about that. Um, they get very good value, Mark. Um, but uh, well, I wanted to move on just, just a bit. You mean you, you uh, wrote a book, um, uh, The Optimist Tour of the Future. Uh, I think you did said perhaps earlier you don't like being called an optimist. No. Realistic. I think anybody who knows uh, me knows that I'm... I'm a possibilist. A poss right. Well, what are uh, some of the things that you're seeing right now or, or coming down the track that are kind of really not necessarily make you, you know, fill you with optimism, but, but, uh, but are full of that possibility that are exciting? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I live in this kind of strange place where because a lot of my time is taken up thinking about the big systemic issues, climate change, inequality, failures of democracy, whatever, yeah. you cannot help but be a bit depressed. It's like, oh, my God. And well, then, so my, but, my dad was a divorce lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But then the other half of my job is, 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 is working with or writing about people who do systems change and right. do it successfully and, and, and challenge those old systems and succeed. So you cannot also not help be like really excited by some of the stuff you see. So there's a number of things, and, and it's a battle, and it's a question of which one's going to win. Does the status quo, which is very well funded, keep us in the old ways of doing things? Mm. Or will these new ways come through? And I've decided which side I'm on. So... I'm constantly inspired by, for instance, people, for instance, if you to take the financial services industry, and there's people in there going like, we are developing a, you know, a set of funds where we use the sustainable development goals as our investment criteria, and we've built up a whole structure around that. And there's people like Mark Campanale doing you know, fantastic things about how do you shift the market so, you know, to a, to a decarbonizing narrative. And like that. That's all brilliant. It makes you very excited. Mm -hmm. and you think, oh, these people are amazing. Or you see companies, you know, like the open source drug discovery thing I talked about earlier, yeah. you know, just shifting the whole paradigm of how you might develop drugs from being a billion dollar bill to a million dollar bill to create a new drug you know that stuff is is hugely optimistic so i'm optimistic about renewables i mean i th you know i think the markets and even the you know uh, the iea has said that peak oil demand is probably the middle of this decade um so you've got a lot of a massive shift there which is in some ways very good although conversations i've been having the mod um we don't want to move over to renewables too fast because if you do that you destroy the economy of russia and the saudi arabia and what you don't right. want is a failed Russia with a nuclear arsenal on the market. Wow. So you have to think carefully about how you do that transition. 
because it's so interesting, you know, we had the, the, the Black Monday yeah. crash and the people were saying, well, a lot of sustainable investors I was talking to were saying, well, there you go, Will, that shows, that just doesn't that show you, in the ha this market's in the hands of individual Saudi royal family mm. uh, and Vladimir Putin. Look how, uh, you know, what's the word, capricious it is. Um, best, that's better, the quicker we get to sustainables, the better. That's you have to have a balance view on these things. I am very, I'm, I'm against purists. And again, that's another problem with the way we frame things. It's mm. always, I win, you lose. It's like, no, we must collaborate together. And we are going to have to collaborate with Russia at some point on moving over to renewables in a way that doesn't destroy we Russian sovereignty. We seem further away from collaboration than ever. Yeah. I mean, we well, don't... that's why I do what I do. <laughs> just, just on that moment, without getting political uh, and just sort of moving move to the final phase here. But, you know, the collaboration is something you've, you've said before, you know, we'll be, well, that's how trust is going to be built. We're going to get projects together. But we want... <laughs> There maybe there's something going on a hard transition here because you know we don't we don't seem to like collaboration. We don't want to be part of a European Federation, for example. Or you know, 52% of people didn't want to be. Um, it, people, there's all sorts of independence movements. There's an independence movement in Cornwall. Yep. You know, we don't like to be tied into this stuff. But perhaps on an individual level or on different le there's a different level there where we're connected in a different way. Yeah. Where we are able to collaborate. Yeah. Well, I think this all comes down to this essential narrative of us all being seen as you know, atomized consumers and, and competitors. Yeah. And if you have that narrative, you end up, you can easily feel disenfranchised. Mm. Um, if you have a social set of social policies that are about reducing social cohesion so that people keep themselves in their, their own sort of set of prejudices and assumptions, you're going to end up with that kind of mindset. And so we now need to have a reinvention of public policy on how do we bring people together so how do we get people to share their stories first and then when they're at that level how do we get them to share information and then that when we get that, that level, how yeah, do they share yeah. their assets that takes time and it means also talking to people desmond tutu says it very well he says if you want to have peace don't go and talk to your friends talk to your enemies mm. and nobody wants to do that because it's difficult but that's what you need from leadership <laughs> and the problem with populism is it says don't talk to your enemies just tell them to fuck off <laughs> And that's no good for any of us in the long term. Right? And it yeah. never works. And it always comes around. I mean, Martin Luther King said the arc of history bends towards justice. And it does very slowly. And we will learn from these mistakes and we'll hopefully get through them because we'll realise at the end of the day, we're all in it together and we have to collaborate. And we might have to go through 10, 15 years of mm. thinking going the other way. But, you know, it's coming to that point now where we're going to realise this, this hasn't been working for anybody. The great humbling is arriving. Have you been on Twitter recently? <laughs> uh, a, I try to avoid Twitter. It's a difficult Twitter. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really good for, you know, sourcing research. But again, is, is it necessarily that important? Yeah. You know, a lot, lots of people... My dad used to say, he said, opinions are like arseholes. Everybody's got one and nobody cares about yours. And what a great <laughs> place to end the podcast. <laughs> with my old man bless his yeah. rest his soul well, that, that sure was, well look I think that we've covered we've covered everything yeah have uh, we? I think I could go on for hours uh, could go on for hours <laughs> yeah um, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there um, Mark thank you very much thank you